Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, now part of Networks, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And of course, also brought to you by Control Up, end-to-end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. Control Up, happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Google has released fixes for two vulnerabilities. One of these vulnerabilities is being exploited in the wild. The zero day is tracked as CVE-2022-1364 and is a high severity flaw reported to the Chrome team by Clement Lissigne of Google's Threat Analysis Group. ZDNet reports the fixes are contained in the Chrome Stable Channel Release 100.0.4896.127 for Windows, Mac, OS and Linux. It will roll out over the coming days or weeks according to Google. Now of course Google tend to be a little closed off when it comes to giving deep technical details on their CVEs so we may have to wait and see what the full implications are for this but don't wait. Patch. Now I didn't cover these patches on last week's Patch Tuesday Roundup in the episode 226 of the five bytes podcast and i don't always cover absolutely every patch news as most of you be well aware most large software vendors release patches on the same day patch tuesday sometimes i do a quick mention that the likes of cisco adobe and google and also others have released patches so just direct people to check those out and obviously test and patch promptly But I wanted to mention this zero-day vulnerability in particular just to tee up this next story. Ars Technica this week covered reports by Google and Mandiant that reveal hackers are exploiting zero days more than ever now. Both teams tracked a record high number of exploited zero days in 2021. Mandiant tracked 80 last year compared to 30 in 2020, and Project Zero tracked 58 in 2021 compared to 25 the year before. As Ars Technica state in their report, before a software vulnerability is publicly disclosed, it's referred to as a zero day because there have been zero days in which the software maker could have developed and released a patch and zero days for defenders to start monitoring the vulnerability. They also went on to state that over the past three years, tech giants like Microsoft, Google, and Apple have started to normalize the practice of noting when they're disclosing and fixing a vulnerability that was exploited before a patch was released. And if you listen to the podcast every week, you'll have undoubtedly noticed this reported increase in zero-day vulnerabilities happening just as you're listening each week. It seems like I'm covering new zero-day vulnerabilities pretty much every week now, and attacks are also now getting reported faster too, or at least it seems. 
possibly because the victims are just quicker to go public. It has been interesting covering these stories over the last few years, and I'm sure this trend will continue too, unfortunately. This week, CDNet reports that Microsoft will finally bring a switching feature to their 365 web apps. If you are fortunate enough to have never tried to access multiple 365 accounts in different browser windows or tabs, you may not even realize that currently it is not possible to do so without using some incognito mode shenanigans or maybe container magic like using CloudHouse containers for containerizing browsers as an example. Well, from April to June, the single browser account switching feature will come to office.com, Word, Excel, PowerPoint for the web, Outlook on the web, OneDrive for the web, SharePoint, and Microsoft 365 Admin Center. Hallelujah. In other good news, Intune device configuration for Azure Virtual Desktop multi-session VMs is now generally available. The following capabilities are now generally available with this release, and that includes automatically enroll VMs in Intune when provisioning Azure AD joined host pools so that they're provisioned, compliant, and ready to use when end users access them, manage both single and multi-session VMs using the settings catalog in Microsoft Endpoint Manager Admin Center, increase your multi-session VM security posture by applying configurations available under the Endpoint Security Blade, including Defender Tamper Protection and Granular Antivirus Policies, leverage Microsoft 365 security features like conditional access on the session hosts, assign applications configured to install in system context to multi-session VMs, and more. I mean, some of these are just obviously features that are available within Microsoft Endpoint Manager that you couldn't use before in a supported way with the multi-session VMs, and now it looks like you'll be able to do so. And this new functionality is available in Intune version 2204. So I wasn't aware of this issue, but apparently some of those running Windows 11 on point of sale devices were facing an agonizing 40 minute startup time. Well, the register reports that Microsoft have patched this with KB5012643. So it looks like this may have been included in the release preview ring of the Windows Insider program earlier in April too. Dell have announced a new line of workstation laptops that will reportedly be the most powerful laptops available on the market when released, according to Ars Technica. And it is easy to see why when reading the specs. Dell will offer both a Precision 7670 and 7770 laptop with up to 128 gigs of DDR5 RAM in a single compression attached memory module. So these modules look to be much thinner than traditional laptop memory chips and can fit much more memory in the limited space currently offered by most laptops. It is reported that speeds can hit 4,800 megahertz if you opt for less memory via either a single CAM, which is that new memory module, or a single dual memory module. And if you opt for the latter, which can be either non-ECC or ECC, the memory then maxes out at 64 gigs of DDR5 across the two channels. 
It looks like the laptop's displays will vary between 16 and 17 inches, so certainly on the larger end. And Dell didn't specify how CPU options would differ between the two designs, but the Precision 7670 will support up to 12th generation Intel Core i9 CPU with vPro. Windows Admin Center version 2110.2 is now available, and this includes HSTS support, which is the HTTP Strict Transport Security, and that's a policy mechanism that helps protect your website by forcing the browser to only open websites with secure HTTPS connections only. And also in this release, session expiration and manage as reauthentication where users can have their user interface session of Windows Admin Center expire after some period of inactivity. So obviously for those security conscious, you don't want someone to be able to walk up to a machine if it's left unlocked and be able to go to Windows Admin Center and have their merry way. Recently, Apple announced that it is formally discontinuing macOS server after 23 years. Ars Technica reports that the software gradually began shedding features, starting with services like DNS and Mail that weren't specific to Macs. Apple did still offer unique features to Mac and iDevice users in-server, like Mobile Device Manager for IT admins, a Time Machine backup service that could enforce per-device storage quotas to keep one Mac from filling up a server's entire hard drive, and caching service that could save bandwidth by storing and offering app and OS updates to other devices on your server's network, rather than downloading things from Apple's servers multiple times. So, you know, that type of smart, efficient routing. Now I've only worked in one IT environment where the actual server product was being used. So it's probably not a huge loss to most of those out there. And honestly, the way it was being used in that one environment was suboptimal for onboarding and deploying new iOS devices. And that was over 10 years ago. So better ways to do things now anyway. You may remember a few weeks ago, I covered a story about a vulnerability with Safari that also bled into other browsers running on iOS. Well, this was because Apple requires competing mobile browsers distributed through the iOS App Store to use their own WebKit rendering engine, which is the basis of its Safari browser. The result is that the likes of Chrome, Edge, and Firefox on iOS are all more or less Safari. Well now, according to a report by The Register, it looks like the EU's Digital Services Act that will be brought in in 2024 could cause a change to this. The rule states that certain services offered together with or in support of relevant core platform services of the gatekeeper, such as identification services, web browser engines, which <laughs> this is the relevant one for this story, uh, payment services are technical services that support the provision of payment services such as payment systems for in-app purchases are crucial for business users to conduct their business and allow them to optimize services. In particular, each browser is built on a web browser engine, which is responsible for key browser functionality such as speed, reliability, and web compatibility. When gatekeepers operate and impose browser engines, they are in a position to determine the functionality and standards that will apply not only to their own web browsers, but also to competing web browsers and in turn to web software applications. 
gatekeepers should therefore not use their position as undertakings providing core platform services to require their dependent business users to use any of those services provided by the gatekeeper itself as part of the provision of services or products by these business users. Now, like I said, for the sake of this story, the web browser engines part is the interesting part, but other elements like payment devices and identification services will have further implications for Apple and other major, and other major tech companies too. Although the way I read the language, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll have to stop doing what they're doing, but I guess they'll just have to do it in such an open way that it's not in any way restrictive to competition. If you run an Intel processor and you've noticed the DWM.exe process consuming crazy resources, it is a good idea to check out the recent Intel driver updates. The issue was described by Intel that DWM.exe produces memory leaks with 6th generation Intel processors through 10th generation Intel processors. The DWM.exe memory usage starts low at around 30 megabytes and then accumulates over time and may result in an system crash. Windows DCH drivers 30.0.101.1191 are newer is required to fix this and it looks like it should be available via the Windows updates if you're enabling that for these third-party driver updates. If not, go out to the Intel site and grab them. And I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 227, and you'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode, or you may find it in the description field for this episode on your podcast platform of choice. In potentially devastating news for some small businesses, Zoom has announced starting May 2nd, they will institute a 40-minute limit to one-on-one meetings for free basic users, similar to the current limit on free group meetings. This could have widespread implications as some in telehealth in particular have relied on one-to-one Zoom sessions over the last couple of years, as have people who are maybe sharing family events with loved ones who are living remotely and can't get home due to the pandemic. So best to start sizing up the best options for you going forward. Unfortunately, the change is happening so soon that I feel a lot of people are gonna be pressured into just paying for the pro subscription and dealing with it and letting it go for the next 12 months and then trying to figure out at the end of the 12 months what option might suit better. But it's gonna be hard to get your clients or customers to move to something else now, at least in a lot of different industries, that's the case where people are not as tech savvy. So good luck to all the Zoom customers who are gonna have a big change come Monday. It looks like this week, Microsoft have signaled their intent to ramp down NetBIOS and LLMNR use and support in Windows. They stated, NetBIOS name resolution and LLMNR are rarely used today. This means that having them enabled needlessly expands the attack surface of devices and increases the load on the networks they use. Disabling these protocols needs to be balanced with real-world deployments, which may still depend on them, but is still the right direction to go. NetBIOS name resolution has been turned off by default on cellular services for some time because it should never be applicable there. In the latest Windows Dev and Beta Insider builds, it has been placed into learning mode where NetBIOS is only used as a fallback after MDNS and LLMNR queries fail. 
This means devices will typically stop using NetBIOS name resolution unless it is manually re-enabled because MDNS will most frequently answer first. They say if this causes connectivity issues, the previous NetBIOS name resolution functionality can be restored by enabling the configure NetBIOS settings, group policy, and select one of the allow or learning modes. And you can find that under computer configuration, administrative templates, network, DNS client. In some quick hit stories now, for the third week in a row, a story about the VMware Workspace ONE Access and Identity Manager vulnerability that is high severity. The Hacker News reports that an Iranian-linked threat actor known as Rocket Kitten has been observed actively exploiting a recently patched VMware vulnerability, this recently patched VMware vulnerability to gain initial access and deploy the core impact penetration testing tool on vulnerable systems. So obviously, if you haven't already, after listening to the last few episodes, patch. <laughs> this is high severity. Uh, on last week's episode, I reported about it being actively exploited. It's ramping up, so patch, patch, patch. BleepyComputer.com reported that T-Mobile has confirmed that the Lapsus extortion gang breached its network several weeks ago using stolen credentials and gained access to internal systems. The telecommunications company added that severed the cybercrime group's access to its network and disabled the credentials used in the hack after discovering the security breach. Christopher Krebs from Krebs on Security has claimed that while inside the mobile carrier's network, the cyber criminals were able to steal proprietary T-Mobile source code, so this story may develop further in the coming weeks and months. Now, see what I just did this time? So I put some of the security-related stories as quick hit stories just at the end. I did this because the security stories have been becoming more and more prevalent. I figure we could all use a bit of a breather from them. It is all still very important for enterprise to know like what is going on out there, but IT is more than just security. So maybe sometimes I will do this and I'll just have some quick hit stories that don't get like deep into the security side of things. Um, just so I can go longer on some other topics. But quickly, bleepycomputer.com reports that Coca-Cola started to investigate after the Stormus gang said that it successfully breached some of the company's servers and stole 161 gigs of data. The threat actors listed a cache of the data for sale on their leak site, asking for 1.65 Bitcoin, which currently stands at around $64,000, which... <laughs> it'll probably be worth a lot more or a lot less in a couple days that's how volatile bitcoin is uh, but among the files listed there are compressed documents text files with admin emails and passwords account and payment zip archives and other type of sensitive information coca-cola has not confirmed that their data was stolen yet and the company told bleepycomputer.com that it is currently collaborating with law enforcement and that the investigation into the alleged attack has not revealed a negative impact yet. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. There's a really great YouTube video where Adam Driscoll goes through creating run spaces and running scripts synchronously and asynchronously using PowerShell. He also goes through initializing a run space with a variable and creating an outer process run space and connecting to another PowerShell process using named pipes. 
So if you're a PowerShell head, check this one out. And finally on this week's episode, Damien Van Robes shared a Toast notification script and blog example for notifying users when the recycle bin contains more than 10 gigs or more. And this is using Intune or MECM. And if you go through the details of it, it looks like they're using proactive remediations for this. So this is actually something similar to what I did um, using control of script-based actions before, although I wasn't um, really notifying on this particular one. I was just clearing the space. Um, that wasn't the recycle bin. That was actually just clearing space on the drive, the system drive, um, when it hit a threshold. But this could be an interesting one because it seems like more and more there's somewhat of an onus on coaching employees to fix some of their own problems and just to kind of guide them and teach them some good practices. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoy the show each week, I'd really appreciate, you know, tell others <laughs> who you think might enjoy it as well. And also leave a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Like, you know, if you're using Apple Podcasts, go in and um, leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. So thank you all and I'll catch you next week.